Today on City Cash Chicago, we're revisiting some of the city's most significant stories of 2023, and this year was the 10-year anniversary of the largest mass school closure in the nation's history. The closure of 50 schools in 2013 reverberated across Chicago's black and brown neighborhoods, and we're still feeling the effects to this day. Back in June, we spoke to Dr. Eve Ewing, the author of Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. She tells us why it's important we never forget or repeat what happened just a decade ago. It's Thursday, December 28th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago's talking about. Eve, welcome back to CityCast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, I appreciate you making time. You taught science at Pershing West Middle School in the Douglas neighborhood from 08 to 2011. How important was Pershing, as well as schools like Mayo, Overton, and Williams, other schools that were targeted by closing during that time, how important were these institutions to the larger Bronzeville community? I mean, a school is more than a school, right? A school is a place that symbolizes people's hopes, aspirations, community desires, right? I think about that a lot. That is the promise of public schooling in the United States, that we have a country where, you know, in theory, every child, no matter where they come from, no matter if they're unhoused, no matter if they speak English, no matter if they're undocumented, is supposed to be able to walk into a school building and get a great education. And that is a audacious thing to try to do, but that is what the educators and the parents and the young people and the community members who make these schools, that is the dream to which they are committed every single day. My best memories of being a teacher are of myself laughing because I'm goofy and ridiculous. That's why I like to teach. You get to experience something with another human being for the first time ever. You get to watch them, you know, come to a philosophical or political understanding for the first time and express it out loud. And you get to be with them when they hold their big, big feelings. And, you know, when they tell you what they want to do with their life. I mean, that's just the best. That's what's going on in hundreds of Chicago public schools every minute of every day all across the city. And that is really worth fighting for. But even when I taught at Pershing, I was aware of the complicated histories of the ways that public housing and public policy had already shaped the path of the building that I was in. So mm-hmm. the the sign in the front said Pershing West Middle School, right? Um, but the engraved sign, the the part that's that's written in stone, said Douglas. And Douglas was what the building had been, you know, prior to an earlier wave of closures. I think that these layers and layers of history are always present in our city. They're always present in our country. But a lot of times they are not present in the way we think about schools and talk about schools. Mm, man, I appreciate you really providing some of that extra context. I mean, I was a product of the Archdiocese of Chicago. I went to Catholic school. And when I was in the fifth grade, my Catholic school closed down. And I remember early in the mm-hmm. school year, the the teachers and the faculty sort of gathering us together and just sort of telling us that this would be the course of action for our school. But we didn't really get a lot of uh, explanations of why. We were just told we were believing. But when you think about the transition that was happening in Chicago public schools, so much of that language around the early 2010s was about schools failing. Right. Did you feel like Pershing was failing the community and, and the students? Well, first of all, one other thing about your story the Chicago Consortium on School Research, one of their prior waves of studies has found that students 
not only experience academic losses after their schools close, but students actually experience academic loss between the period when they find out that their school is closing and the end of the year. Mm -hmm. That research actually had been published prior to the 2013 school closing. So that's something that that we knew at the time. And and I mean, this language, this this language around school failure, school success, it had really been fermenting for the generations leading up oh, to it. We talk absolutely. about the 90s under then CPS CEO Paul Vallis. You saw increases in academic probations, sort of funding tied to school and pupil success, exactly. more, more testing. And so so again, even just hearing that your school, your your community was being looked at as a potential a failure. failure, is that something that you th you think kind of uh, made its way down into the school community that students, teachers, parents were also hearing? You're absolutely right that the 90s and into the 2000s, into the 2010s, we really saw the amplification of what we call the era of accountability, right? And the thing is, is that accountability is always taken to mean that... Um, Teachers should be held accountable, that students should be held accountable. In some of my other writing, I've pushed for what I call expanded accountability, meaning we need to hold public policy leaders accountable, right? We need to hold politicians mm -hmm. accountable for the conditions that we create that lead schools into the traps that then allow us to deem them as failures. And so your question of, you know, did I think of the school as a failure? Absolutely not. And it was actually that cognitive dissonance that really led me to want to write this book. I remember very specifically where I was and, and how I felt in the moment when not only did I open that, uh, the, you know, the newspaper and see the long, long list of schools that were uh, slated to be shut down. But moreover, I saw those words from Barbara Bird Bennett, who was leading the district at the time. And she said, you know, these schools are underfunded and under-resourced, right? And she said that in a way that was not um, a, a point of empathy or a point of admitting guilt or culpability. Exactly. There's no accountability to how a school gets under-resourced. Right, right. It was an accusation. And, I, and in reading that... I understood that this type of language is meant to trigger very specific images in the minds of people who have never set foot inside a public school on the South side or a public school that's majority black. And this type of language is very intentionally drawing upon a, multiple generations of media images of the way we represent um, these spaces and the way we represent black people and black children more generally. That's very intentional. It's very strategic. It was also very strategic that, you know, this is coming from a black woman. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel was strategic enough to invoke the logic of what we like to call, you know, black faces in high places. I think often of the fact that Barbara Bird Bennett is now, you know, was was found to be engaged in some incredibly unscrupulous behaviors and, and caught a, a federal bribery case. We don't get to go back and get repair. We don't get to go back and get reparation or accountability for it. the decisions made and, and headed up by a leader that we now understand to have been, you know, acting very unscrupulously. Um, so, yeah, I think that the rhetoric of failure is very hurtful yeah. and it's very intentional. And it is absolutely something that children hear and children internalize. There had been rumblings for years about under-enrollment, financial strain in CPS. We had seen a growth in selective enrollment schools and charter school enrollment had grown by almost 200 percent between 05 and 2011. And then Rahm Emanuel was elected in 2011 and the whispers of pending school closings pick up. What do you remember about the lead up to this decision to target nearly 50 schools in? You know, how did that feel in that exact moment to just just see how many schools were on the chopping block? 
you know, you can see a truck coming at you down the highway and it still hurts to get hit, right? Like the writing had been on the wall in so many ways. And and the thing is that there had been school closures under daily, right? Like wave after wave. And it makes the other hand of this policy era even more egregious because as you point out, under enrollment and declines in enrollment didn't come out of the clear blue sky, right? They came out of a largely heralded, highly publicized effort at what Mayor Daley called a renaissance, right? At the same time as the plan for transformation was tearing down high-rise public housing in Chicago, I think that what really blew me was the ahistoricity, right? The total lack of acknowledgement of things that we all just saw just happened. And, you know, one of the things that I write about in the book that a lot of people don't know is that, you know, Rahm Emanuel was on the Chicago Housing Authority board during the plan for transformation. And so to be one of the people who actually witnessed up close, right, the policy decision and the aftermath of the policy decision to tear down public housing, and yet to not even mention it and to act like Black people just up and left was wild, right? And I mean, again... You hear throughout the 90s, public housing is failing and no one accounts for the generations, the decades of of disinvestment in these housing units. And then the same thing is happening with public schools. And when you hear that, when you know that most of the tearing down of public housing, most of the closing of these schools happened in black and brown neighborhoods around black and brown children, it feels like the, the erasure, the it's not just violence, but sort of the, not only the erasure, but ignoring mm-hmm. this context continues the the racist policy that we've seen build Chicago. No, you're exactly right. And I think that one thing I appreciate about these conversations is that to me, this story has never really been about schools. It's really a story about what we understand racism to be and how we understand racism to function. Because one of the defenses, you know, you and I already talked about Barbara Bird Bennett coming out as a black woman herself when she was accused of, you know, these policies are racist, these school closings are racist. She made this statement. She said that if you say that this stuff is racist, number one, you were ignoring, she said, well, the majority of students in CPS are black and brown kids. So anything that happens is disproportionately going to affect them. And she said verbatim, because this is a very important quote to me. She said that is not racism. It's simply a fact. The second thing she said is that also this is offensive to me as a black woman. What I cannot understand and what I will not accept are charges that the proposals that I am offering are racist. But what I cannot understand and will not accept are that the proposals I am offering are racist. That is an affront to me as a woman of color. And it is an affront to every parent in our community who demands a better education for their children. Because I can't be racist. I can't, like, how dare you? And if you say this, you're the real racist, right? Because now you've offended me. This is how structural racism gaslights us, right? This, this is how it does it. Correct. Correct. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant rhetorical move because what she's doing in that statement, by saying those two things, she's redefining what racism is in a way that if you don't, if you don't catch it, it can slip by you really quickly, right? So she's saying, first of all, the real racism is like interpersonal insults, right? And how dare you say this to me? You can't ever say stuff to black people. Okay, like that's not what racism is. The second thing is 
that saying that like, well, anything that happens in CPS is going to affect black and brown kids, so it can't be racist, disregards that that is actually the very definition of structural racism, right? Number one, it is not by incident or happenstance that this is the demographics of our district. There is a wide variety of incredibly explicitly racist policy and individual action, including the widespread divestment of white families, right, that has led us to this point. I mean, this happened swiftly, but not overnight. Can you recall the reactions from community members? Because the book goes through public records of school closure hearings. I read once this was one of the most traumatic research experiences of your career at the time. What have you heard from students, parents and teachers, both from listening to those hearings and in the years since? One of the things that looking back over the last 10 years, it's very apparent to me how much the organizing around school closures and actually a couple years prior to that, the teachers union strike that happened um, in 2011, um, how critically that set the stage for building and strengthening the very, you know, contributing to the very robust organizing political consciousness that we have in Chicago. People formed the relationships, the systems and structures that they then brought to protesting what happened to Laquan McDonald, right? That they then brought to protesting uh, and being on the streets in 2020, that they then brought to mutual aid efforts and that they then brought to the election this year. Do you think that that same level of hope or optimism or even connection, as you think back to those public hearings, do you think that was present in some of those? Or do you feel like people were resigned to just thinking this is another, you know, the city loves to do this, another two hour meeting where they'll put someone up there to sort of listen to us at what, uh, 120 seconds, tell what a school means to our community. You know, what, what was people's reactions in those hearings? Did, Did you feel like people thought that they would make some big change? I think that it was hard because I think that there was a, a range where there were some people who were very, um, I don't want to say cynical because cynical suggests that it's like unwarranted, but some people that were really wide-eyed about like, look, this is what they do. This is how they do us. This is how they did us last time. This is how they're going to do us again. And it's the same old, same old, right? Truthfully, I want to make you sad. I want to make you nervous. I want to make you uncomfortable. I want to make you feel unloved. I want to make you feel kicked to the curb. In other words, I want to make you feel like a George Benier Elementary School student and the rest of these students, how they feel right now. I think that there are those people, but there are also literal kids, like literal children, as well as some people who maybe, maybe this was their first really meaningful political experience. Chicago public school students from across the city protesting outside CPS headquarters today. Students skipped out on school on the second day of testing for state required exams for high school juniors. And people kind of, some of those people believed the rules of engagement, right? They believed that they could get a fair shake. And I think that there were people who felt like this is supposed to be a just country. This is supposed to be a just city. If I stand up and if I say my piece, then people are going to see the good things about this school and it's going to stay open. And so I think it's very painful to look back at that time. And I think about what messages we send to young people in particular about political participation and democratic participation and whether their voices can be heard. And, you know, I know that you all have been having really important conversations on your show about when we see young people, you know, engaging in 
in big public gatherings in ways that we wish they wouldn't, in ways that involve violence or property destruction. You know, the, we always have to ask the question, how did we get here? It's been 10 years now, and my hope is that with this as well as other coverings of this, don't simply treat this as an anniversary because now it's been 10 years and we've elected a former CTU organizer as mayor. And, and diet hunger striker, and, and former diet, diet hunger, hunger striker. But we're also discussing the impacts of a multi-year pandemic and what they've had on schools as another school closing moratorium is coming to an end in a few years. Do you think we've truly coped or made sense as a city with just how big an impact this this moment in our history had on communities and, and black and brown Chicagoans. So, you know, one thing people should understand is that school enrollment across the country in the wake of the pandemic has declined precipitously. Um, in some places, it is recovering in the last like 2021, 2022. But in some places, um, you know, we're talking 10, 20, 30 percent drops in enrollment. And so, yes, Chicago, we are going to find ourselves looking at the same numbers but worse, that we were looking at in the moments that led up to this school closure decision. And the question is, have we taken it upon ourselves to develop a more complicated and richer and deeper understanding of the relationships between families, communities, schools, parents, history, young people, and the future in the way that we deserve? But I am cautiously... Um, I'm not going to say optimistic. I am intrigued and I am watching about the ways that people within CPS and around CPS have articulated that they really are looking at this differently and have learned some lessons. Now, actions speak louder than words. And so we're going to have to see if that alleged learning comes into practice. After the first moratorium ended in what, 2017, 2018, they decided almost immediately to close four Inglewood schools and to That's right. consolidate them. And so now that this moratorium is up, like you said, will they come out of it with um, a sort of more humane approach to deal with this situation? But what would you want to see from city and CPS leaders in 2025 when it ends? Here's the thing. We have a history of asking people in communities what they think about things, not just around schools, but in general, in ways that are either either doesn't happen or is perfunctory at best. And then we ask them that when the fix is in, the deal is done and the decision has been made. And we do that as a way of checking a box like, well, you know, we spoke with the community, capital T, capital C, right? And um, we don't structure decision making in a way that actually leaves space for those points of feedback to be meaningfully integrated. And so what I would like to see is for us to get into a practice of really meaningful engagement in which talking to communities and asking what people want is not the final checkbox, right? And my fear is that we haven't spent enough time doing that when the stakes are low to build our muscles up to be really ready when the stakes are high. But it's never too late, right? The best time to start is now. And so what I hope is that these numbers, as we look at these declining enrollments, the question will not just be, okay, we got to close some schools. How are we going to do it? And how can we be inclusive? But actually, like, let's be a little bit more radical than that. And let's start at the beginning and, and be community involved in how we even ask more broadly, like, what do we want? And how do we get there? And 
I would like to see those efforts headed up by CPS. And I also know that Chicagoans are going to be big and bold in making demands on being at the table, right? Or we will flip the table. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, Chicagoans have shown, you know, get me a seat, make it a comfortable one, uh, or I'm going to flip this joint over, you know? Dr. Eve Ewing is an educator, a writer, and the author of Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closing on Chicago South Side. Eve, you know this, but I will say it every time you show up. You are truly one of my favorites. Thank you for making time. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the work that you all do every single day. Thank you. Thank you. Before we let you go, some good news. I know Christmas is already in the rear view, but hey, you still got a little over a week to enjoy some of the best holiday pop-ups and light shows Chicago has to offer. Uh, Gallagher Way Winterland ends on January 7th. Botanic Garden Lightscape ends on January 7th. Museum of Science and Industry Christmas Around the World ends on January 7th. You're seeing a pattern. So hey, you still got a little bit of time to enjoy that holiday spirit before they wrap all these lights up and put them away until next November. One last thing. Make sure you subscribe to Hey Chicago, our daily newsletter, to keep up with the latest and greatest in the city. Uh, the best way to bring in the new year is to be tapped into the place you live. So sign up now at chicago.citycast.fm. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. Peace. And, you know, I was born at night. I wasn't born last night. I, I just think like... Come on, Eve. Come on. I, was just like, <laughs> I mean, I thought you dated yourself when you said you had a student who was second grade teacher now, but that no. one. <laughs> you know.